the world, including all the states of India. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, you're welcome. Thanks. Okay. Um, the, the first time probably ever I'm ahead of schedule in preaching. And so the next chapter that I wasn't going to preach on is chapter 7 in the book of Nehemiah. The reason why we didn't have someone come up and read it is because basically the entire chapter is, is like people's names and numbers. So at the end of chapter 6, and in, I know, um, at the end of chapter 6 and into chapter 7, um, Nehemiah has, has come from Susa. He's like rallied all the people of God. They've rebuilt the wall around Jerusalem. They've put in its bars and gates. They're actually in some sense safe from their enemies that are around them. They've accomplished so much of what they've planned to accomplish already. And then, kind of like plopped in the middle of this book, is like this list of all these people in numbers. Just how many people from everywhere. And one of the, one of the questions— one of the verses that I think is really neat is there's this verse, verse 33. You can memorize this verse if you want. It's Nehemiah 7, verse 33. It reads like this. The men of the other Nebo, comma, 52. The men of the other Nebo, 52. You'll be the only person in your Bible study that's memorized that verse. Right? Oh, there it is right there. Um, one of the things you can ask yourself is, um, why on earth does Nehemiah and does God inspire Nehemiah to record the names and numbers of all these people that we don't want to read about? Right? I mean, how many of you are the first 10 chapters of First Chronicles? That's just like your favorite part of the Bible. <laughs> it's just so many names and numbers of silver bowls, and it's just so riveting, right? Like, what— What's the point of this? I mean, like, like the Bible isn't that much information. Why, why would God waste precious pages on names and numbers like this, right? Now, there's some—what the commentators say about this is they say, well, because later on, Nehemiah is going to—has to get people to live in the city of Jerusalem because it's basically depopulated because it's a big, like, pile of garbage right now. And in order to do that, he's got to know how many people are from each family so the percentage from each family can be asked to live in Jerusalem. The problem with that is, is that right in the book of Nehemiah in chapter 11, it says that's not how they do it. It says that some people volunteer to live in the city, and they're praised by everyone, and then everybody else casts lots for who's going to have to go live in the city until the city is built back up. I don't think that's the reason. I think the reason is that these people are commemorated because they did it. They came back from Persia. They crossed the sands. They lived amidst their enemies. Their lives and their wives and their children and their livelihoods were constantly threatened. They dealt with all kinds of problems. And they built the wall. And Nehemiah gets to the end of all this trouble, and he decides that he can't write down every single person's name. There's 42,000 people. But he can write down the heads of every family and every group of people, so much so that this little town on the side of the mountain, 15 miles down the Dead Sea River Valley, called Nebo, which is home to like 100 or 200 shepherds, 52 of their men came and built on the wall, and they get recorded forever. Do you understand? And what's the significance of that? Right? You, you might be able to say it like this. For, for real renewal to happen, for something really great to be built, it includes everybody. 
It includes everybody. One, one of the things that Nehemiah does here is he doesn't just take for granted that without his great leadership, none of this could have happened, right? He, he writes down all these people. He records, all, he records the number of donkeys that they have, okay? Like he records everything. He's like, all these people were there and they all were there and we all built Jerusalem together. We all renewed the people of God together, right? Everybody worked and nobody quit. Right? Every part matters, and everybody's work matters. Now, part of the reason why I'm going this direction is because I'm not really going to preach expositionally today. I'm going to use this as a launching point for a topic that I think that the church misunderstands pretty much. Because if you ask yourself, what's going on here? There's, there's something really special about the book of Nehemiah, and it is that Nehemiah is one of the great heroes of the Old Testament, one of the great heroes of the people of God, and he's not in the clergy in any meaningful sense. He's not a priest. He's not a prophet. We tend to think of even kings in the Old Testament as somehow like priests of God, kind of, because they lead the people. They're not. But we tend to think of them that way, that like somehow the, 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 the king is like a, that's a spiritual position. It's not a spiritual position. We think of it that way, though, because Jesus is prophet, priest, and king, right? So then we backtrack in our minds into the Old Testament and think of the kingship as a spiritual leadership position because David wrote more worship songs than anybody else. But it's not really—David was weird that way right? Nehemiah is the governor of the building project of Jerusalem. He's not a priest, right? He's a cupbearer, and then he's a leader, and that's it. He has no ministerial vocation, right? But one of the things that I want you to see is that this is important because if, if we as a church don't understand the importance that everybody is needed for renewal, then what can easily happen is in our minds, we can think what's really needed for renewal is really great spiritual leadership, right? If we get really great spiritual leadership, then there will, God will bring revival and renewal and like really great stuff is going to happen. And then, and then maybe like all the lay people, like the people who aren't in vocational ministry, will all get stirred up and some great thing will happen. That's not actually how it works. It's not actually how it works. And that distinction in the New Testament doesn't really exist which we'll get to in a little bit. But one of the things that happens, this distinction has existed since about the 15th century. So 1,500 years into the Christian church before we came up with this idea of a lay person, right? That is, the word lay comes from the old French lie, which means, which means secular or not within the religious fold. And so the idea that there are some people that do the sacred work of God and there are some people who do the secular work that has nothing to do with God sort of entered in. And, and at first it wasn't— it wasn't a, necessarily a bad idea. At first, it was just in reference to priests. There were some priests that served just in the monasteries, and there were some priests that served common people in the towns. And the priests who served the common people in to towns were called the secular priests or the lay priests. These are priests that were secular. But over time, it, became, it came to be felt that there were, there were pastors and there were priests who did the spiritual work of God, and then there were other people who just didn't. They, they just didn't have that calling. They just— they didn't, or they didn't care enough, or, or something. And so what, what happens is this, and this is not what anybody meant when they came up with this, but here's what happens. Pastors end up thinking too much of themselves, and people who aren't pastors think too little of their ministries and their lives, and they really think there's a distinction, and there are all kinds of people who love Jesus a lot, who are business people, or laborers, or entrepreneurs, and they don't think of themselves as doing the work of God every day, and they wonder if maybe they missed their calling, right? And they think, 
that somehow God is like, doesn't really pay much attention to them because they're not where the moving and shaking really is, which much must be in the clergy, in those pastor people. Does that make sense? And that would be kind of like Nehemiah getting the end of this and only talking about himself and his, his, like his servants. Yeah, we built such a great wall in Jerusalem. We did a great job. We, we built up Judea, the whole countryside. Like the, the Jews are people because of us. But that's not what he does. He commemorates everybody because everybody's needed for renewal. One of the ways to think about this is to recognize that the priests in the Old Testament, and, and in some ways pastors and apostles and people like that in the New Testament, it's not a differentiation of godliness. It's a differentiation of labor. What kind of work is each person going to give the best hours of their day to? That's literally what Ephesians 4.12 says, right? Some are apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers, right? so that they can equip the saints for works of service. What is the work of a priest in the Old Testament? The word service is the, the normal word, is not the normal word. That they served people. They helped other people get done what they needed to get done. If anybody's a priest in that context, it's all of the people of God. Do you understand? We'll get to that more in a little bit. One of the things I want you to see about the nature of the book of Nehemiah is three facts that are through the whole book of Nehemiah, that if we just look at each individual passage, and I preach from each individual, pa individual passage, you can easily miss this. But first of all, when the book of Nehemiah starts, when the book starts, the people of God have an altar for the worship of God. They've rebuilt a temple to worship God. They have prophets telling them what God says, and they have priests doing the work of ministry. And the people are still destitute, in shambles, disgraced, and ready to get obliterated. They are anything but spiritually alive, and they are anything but thriving and flourishing as a people. Do you understand? And they have everything religious they need, and they are lost, right? Secondly, in the success in the book of Nehemiah, everyone works. All different kinds. Like, if you remember chapter 3, that the priests were working next to the perfumers, who were working next to the day laborers, who were working next to the nobles, who were working next to somebody's daughters, who was working next to a shepherd, who was working next to a— Everybody did the job that was in front of them to do, and they all got the thing done together, right? And then thirdly, the flourishing of the people of Judah actually came through a number of non-religious actions— that were done for God's glory. So you can call them secular if you want to. They aren't overtly actions of worship. That's true. But they're all done for God's glory. The reason why, why Nehemiah comes in the first place, remember, is because of his passion for God. His passion for God's promises and his passion for God's people. And because he's so passionate for God's glory, he went, secular man that he is, so to speak, and did all these non-explicitly religious actions for God's glory and for the good of all of his neighbors. Right? You'd be like, well, yeah, well, he built a wall. That's one thing. No, he did a lot of things, right? So one, he doesn't just get permission to come and build the wall, which was an important political thing. He actually gets investment from a foreign country, money to be spent on the building of the wall. And then he has to reestablish military security in the city. He reestablishes the infrastructure, mostly by building the wall, but also by moving rubble and all kinds of other things too, which is basic labor, right? He has to repopulate an urban area that's been completely depopulated, right? He has to restore the economic systems and markets. We'll get to that in chapters coming up. He has to be like, here's when you can open the doors. Here's where people can buy and sell. Here's when they can buy and sell. Here's what people who are doing can't do, and here's what they can do. Here's how you regulate the market, right? 
He does restitution for the poor and institutes economic justice in chapter 5. Later on, he's going to deal with like intermarriage with non non-Jewish people and the loss of the Hebrew language and how they're losing their culture and identity. He deals with these family problems and cultural identity. He reinstitutes national festivals and engages in very touchy diplomacy with all the people around him who want to kill him. Do you see? Do you see what's happening here? That's, he's, he's making a culture. <laughs> he's building a society. He's doing everything that's necessary for people to flourish. And almost none of that has anything to do with priests. Do you understand? And all of it is necessary for a people to flourish, both materially and spiritually. The people were not flourishing spiritually before these things happened. And as these things happened, people flourished more spiritually. It made space for in chapter 8 and chapter 9 for Ezra to then come as the priest and tell the people the word of God again, and for them to go through this process of repentance and restoration as a people that you'll hear about next week is when Mike comes to preach. So I want to go through four key doctrines related to vocation. Sometimes we talk about vocation or calling. I heard someone say one time, um, do you do it as a calling or do, do you do something, what you do as a vocation or do you do it as a calling? And afterwards I was like, you do realize that vocation is the Latin for calling, right? They're not different. They're the same thing. Um, so so p- people talk a lot. So let me tell you, just four things, okay? And I, my, my goal is for this to be freeing for us and unifying for us, okay? The first is devotion doesn't, deter- d- devotion doesn't determine vocation. Devotion does not determine vocation, okay? There's no direct relationship between devotion and vocation. Do you know what I mean by that? So here's what I mean by that. Who should become a pastor? Who should become a missionary? Who should become a college staff worker or a church planter? Right? The people who are 100% devoted to Jesus, right? No. No, 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 no. There is no relationship between devotion and vocation. Okay? Everybody wants to do something great for Jesus who loves Jesus, right? Like you, sometimes you hear people, you, you've probably heard this sermon, right? We need people to go to the mission field. I'm looking for somebody who really, really loves Jesus with all their heart. There's lots of people who say they love Jesus, but there are a couple here who love Jesus with all their hearts. And someone has to go to the nations. And it's got to be you because it's hard, right? That's not right. It's kind of right. Because somebody does have to go to the nations, and it is hard, and you better be fully devoted to Jesus if you're going to do it. That's right, but that's not what distinguishes somebody as the person who should receive the call and go as a missionary. Devotion and vocation have no formal relationship to each other. And you're like, well, Nick, that doesn't sound very good. Okay, listen. It's very easy to misunderstand this because in the New Testament, the main characters we read about are all clergy. Like, they're all apostles and prophets and pastors. And so you read about the Apostle Paul, and you read about the Apostle Peter, and they're like spiritually gallivanting through the Roman Empire and doing amazing things. And you're like, these people get it. Like, they really love Jesus so much. Yeah, do they love Jesus more than the Thessalonians who are getting beaten to death because they believed in Jesus, who like make dresses? Or does Paul have the grace and the calling and the ability and the training and the linguistic capacity, and the entrepreneurial ability to be a missionary. And he's doing that. And everybody else has to love Jesus 
as much to listen, martyrdom is not specifically for clergy, and we're all to be prepared for it. I mean, think about what Jesus says in Luke. He says, Then he said to them, say that word with me, all, if, say the black words with me, okay? If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me will save it. What good is it for a man to gain the whole world and yet lose or forfeit his very self? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his glory and in the glory of his Father and the holy angels. Do you see the point there? Who is supposed to be 100% devoted to Jesus? Who, what group among the believers is supposed to be ready to face death daily for the beauty and the glory and the perfections of Jesus the Christ? And the answer is, everyone. So if, if, you, if we were to select our pastors out of the people most devoted to Jesus, everybody would have to be a pastor who belongs to Jesus, right? And let me just tell you something. Not every pastor is 100% devoted to Jesus. Like, if, if our clergy was all people 100% devoted to Jesus, there would be a lot of—there would be a lot of vocational churn, as they say. A lot of pastors would be having to get out of ministry, and a lot of people who aren't vocationally pastors would have to be getting into ministry. Does that make sense? That's if anybody is truly 100% devoted to Jesus. Right? That's the pursuit—should be the pursuit of all of our lives, though. Now, it's important to remember that— one of the reasons that this is true is more responsibility isn't the same thing as caring. Like, you can really care about something that you're not responsible for, right? Like, my seven-year-old, Helena, can really care about, like, Jill's new baby, Jovi, and she should not be put in responsibility of that child. Do you understand? That the two just don't go together. And for something to be a vocation, it, mean, it partly means that you've been called to enter into the thing and to take responsibility for it. And that proceeds on different criteria than just that you really care. Because listen, if your heart is really open, you're going to care about so many more things than you can do. Right? This is one of the biggest problems in my marriage, is my wife is like, you need to stop doing everything you like. Because you like too many things. You care about too many things. You're interested in too many things. There's like 50 different careers I would love to do. And I can only do this one. And it—sometimes that's frustrating for me. But if I— said, no, I'm going to do all—I'm going to do like 50 careers at one time. I wouldn't do any of them, right? I don't have a calling to what I care about. I have a calling to what I've entered into a responsibility for that I also care about. Because devotion has nothing to do directly with vocation. Does that make sense? Okay. So that's why really loving Jesus or really wanting to do something that matters— isn't a reason to enter vocational ministry. It's a reason to enter redeemed humanity. Do you understand? Okay, let's go on to the next one. Two, Jesus gave us all the priestly vocation, along with the creation mandate. Jesus gave us all the priestly vocation, not just pastors or missionaries or church planters or worship leaders. He gave it to all of us, right? So one of the misunderstandings about this is that because the priests lead the people of God in the Old Testament, therefore the church's leaders— and the New Testament must be the priests. Not true. In fact, one of the things that's really interesting, one of the things that separates um, Protestants of our type from m people of the magisterial traditions, Roman Catholics, Orthodox, Greek Orthodox, Anglican, and so on, who call their pastors priests, is that in the Reformation with, with Martin Luther and others, there was this rejection of the idea of the ontological priesthood, which meant this. 
that when a person was, went through the process of what was called ordination, right? The, the put, laying on the hands and the praying that the Holy Spirit would change and fill that person to be prepared to be a priest among God's people, that there was a fundamental spiritual change that happened to that person specific only to priests who received the ordination so that they could give out the spiritual nourishment of the sacraments to God's people. Protestants basically said two things. One, the sacraments aren't as nourishing in that sense as you think. God's nourishment comes the, from the Holy Spirit in the work of regeneration by believing in Christ and not through the sacraments. Though you can grow in discipleship, and that is spiritually nourishing, these things that the church had called sacraments for several hundred years up to that point didn't function that way, and therefore you didn't need an ontologically different priest in order to create the spiritual thing to happen. The interesting thing about the New Testament is the whole language of priesthood is completely absent. Just try to find literally one verse in the entire New Testament that refers to the leaders of God's church as priests, and you will not find any. In Hebrews, there's a long discussion of Jesus as the great high priest, which discusses the priesthood in detail, right? The only other references to the priesthood is specifically in reference to the nation of people who Jesus has saved, that is, all believers. So, for example, in 1 Peter 2, 5, and 9, we're called a, a nation or a people of priests. That is in reference to the whole church of Jesus Christ. And then when you read through the book of Rela Revelation, you can see this picture of the people of God amidst the rest of the world, and they are called a nation and priests, which comes directly from the Old Testament where God tells Abraham that out of his loins, out of his line of people, he would create a people in the earth that were a nation of kings and priests. So God's intention, all the way back in Abraham, to the present, spoken in the New Testament, confirmed in Revelation, everywhere through, states that the priesthood doesn't proceed from the leaders of the Old Testament people of God to the leaders of the New Testament people of God, but from the leaders of the Old Testament people of God to all of the people of God as they lead the world to become disciples of Jesus and to be his. And so there is no priestly distinction in the New Testament people of God, in those who belong to Jesus, which means what are you if you believe in Jesus? You are a priest. There's no distinction between you, if you don't do Christian ministry stuff for a living, and me, along these lines, according to the scriptures and according to the teachings of Christ and his apostles. Right? There's no point at which Peter calls himself a priest. Or Paul calls himself a priest. We'll get to a place where he refers to his work as priestly work. That's actually the next slide. The only place in the New Testament where the work of ministry is referred to as priestly work is Paul at the very end of the book of Romans. He says this. He says, On some points I've written to you very boldly by way of reminder because of the grace given me by God to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles in the priestly service of the gospel of God so that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. That doesn't make him a priest, understand? Any more than any of us. What he's saying is, he says, the work of the gospel, that is preaching about Jesus to people and inviting them to come and believe and be saved, that is itself priestly work. Because what you're doing is, you're preparing a sacrifice for God. He's like, so think about the Old Testament. What did the, what did the priests do in the Old Testament? Right? Their job was to take the offerings that people brought to the temple and to prepare them 
to be offered to God properly so that the offering would be acceptable to God, so God would take pleasure and enjoy and receive the offering that he was given. He's right, right? And so he's saying, listen, if you take all the Gentiles, all the nations who don't know God, who don't have the scriptures, who don't know what it means to obey him, and now the word of Christ, the gospel, can be given to them, he's like, what, what does that actually do? Well, when I bring it to the nations and they believe in Jesus— right? They go from darkness to light. They experience regeneration. They experience redemption and forgiveness. They enter into the light of the gospel. They're saved and redeemed. And what's happened is they have themselves gone from an unacceptable sacrifice to God that God is separated from because of sin and takes no—takes no sacrificial pleasure in to becoming an offering prepared for God beautifully and ready through the gospel. And he's like, so when I do the work— of making disciples, when I do the work of sharing the gospel, when I do the work of helping somebody who doesn't know Jesus and is opposed to God in that way, to believe in him and to come to him and be changed, and they enter in, the Holy Spirit then comes and makes them an acceptable offering through the gospel, and then I offer them to God through the work of the gospel. And that is priestly work. Now here's the question. To whom was that job given by Jesus? The job of going to people who don't belong to Jesus yet to bring them to him through the gospel so that the Holy Spirit can make them pleasing and enjoyable sacrifices to God that he delights in. And the answer is, at the end of the Matthew, right, Jesus says to the disciples, all the believers, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me, therefore you go and make disciples of all nations. He gives this to the whole of the church, all of the disciples. And he ordains the whole church to do the priestly work of taking the gospel to all peoples and to offer them as sacrifices to God by bringing them through the work of the Spirit and the gospel to him, to be pleasing to him. Does that make sense? So who, who obtains that ministry? The answer is everyone who believes in Jesus has that ministry. All right, let's do the third one. The third is getting called is not literal, usually. Calling doesn't mean not deciding. Okay. I have—I am very interested in a broad and rich theological view of calling, where the Bible teaches us a lot about our vocational callings. Here's, here's what I need to tell you, though, having read 35 books on this and numerous articles. The Bible has no direct systematic teaching on work vocation, okay? I've been on the conference calls. I've gone to the conferences. I've read the books. I've read the articles. I wanted to get on board. I wanted to believe it. It is simply not there in the Bible. The Bible does not discuss calling and vocation in those terms, okay? So, there's a misunderstanding about that, about the idea of receiving a calling in relationship to what you're going to do with your life, right? I, I, there's a lot of younger people that are very anxious about this idea. Well, what does God want me to do with my life? What's God's will for my life? I've got to find God's will for my life. Maybe God's will is like, like a little, like a little, you know, silver line. If I get off it, then I'll be off it. Then I'll know if you pack on it, and then I'm not elected. I mean, like, the philosophy is really poor, but when you don't realize that, it sounds like good thinking, and it's very— it's very unnerving, right? And most people, if they came to Jesus early in their life and they're really devoted to Jesus, they really want to be in his will. They, they feel like they don't know what that is, that they want to do it. So how do you find it? And so God should tell you, right? And you should then do it. 
And the problem is, is that whole idea of God calling and telling you what to do in your life, it's not literal. Usually. Okay? It's easy to look at the narrative text of the Bible and of all the human race to see 10 or 12 people <laughs> that God very specifically tells to do something and believe that that's going to happen to you like Jesus is going to knock you off a horse, you know, and you're going to be blind and somebody's going to come pray for you. And that's like, that's not probably what's going to happen. I remember Don Carson talking about speaking with pastors and being at a conference and they'd get out, get around a room. There's like 15 people around a table. And he's like, um, share how you got called to ministry, right? And nobody said, well, God just, we just called me. What could I possibly explain? He just said, hello, Richard, you will be doing Christian ministry. Please attend seminary early. Like, that never happens. Nobody says that. Nobody goes, I mean, some people say, look, I felt re like an intuition inside that I really needed to go into ministry, right? Like, but that's not the same thing as what usually happens in the biblical sections. They talk about that. It's different. The internal intuition that we believe is from the Holy Spirit or from our best self that God is redeeming by the Spirit is not the same thing as receiving an objective calling. They're not the same. I'll get to what the difference in a minute. But it's important to recognize that it's easy to come to the misunderstanding that if the Bible teaches that God will give us each a calling, and he'll point his will for our life, but the problem is, is that that's not actually what the Bible promises. What the scriptures actually promise is that God will go before you and prepare good works for you to do, and he will remake you in redemption to be able to do them. And there is nowhere where it tells you he's going to tell you what those are. Do you understand? That's a really key idea. That's not what you—you you don't get that. And part of the reason why you don't get to know exactly how God is shaping you and exactly what God is preparing you for is because A, you might quit if you knew. You might be terrified. You might not do it. Um, it's also just not the way the future works. Um, it's, it's also just—he didn't choose to do it. He doesn't have to tell you, Right? And if what's most foundational about knowing God is trusting him, it doesn't make any sense that he would tell you, right? What he, what he asks for and, and commands us to give him is obedience in the things we know to do, right? So um, one of the places sometimes people will say there's a, a theology of calling in the New Testament is in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. It says this, and you, you tell me if this is a theology of vocation. Nevertheless, each one should retain the place in life that the Lord assigned to him and to which God has called him. This is the rule I lay down in all the churches. Was a man already circumcised when he was called? He should not become uncircumcised. Was a man uncircumcised when he was called? He should not become circumcised. Circumcision is nothing, and uncircumcision is nothing. Keeping God's commands is what counts. Each one should remain in the situation which he was in when God called him. Were you sl a slave when you were called? Don't let it trouble you, although if you can gain your freedom, do so. For he who was a slave when he was called by the Lord is the Lord's freed man. Similarly, he who was a free man when he was called is Christ's slave. You were bought at a price. Do not become the slaves of men. Brothers, each man as responsible to God should remain in the situation God called him to. What is, what is called referred to in that passage? Right? In every situation but one, it refers to conversion. It refers to the effectual call of God where God calls you to Jesus to believe in him. And then he basically says, wherever you're at, 
when you receive Jesus, it's fine. Don't let it trouble you. Whatever you've already done, whatever's already happened to you, if you're in a situation you can't already change, it's fine. It's fine. You can serve Jesus in that situation. You don't have to do something else. Which means, if there's a theology of calling in this passage, it's do what you're already doing. How do you like, does that comfort you? Does that, does that sound like sexy theology to you? Right? That's not what you want to hear. But listen, for most people in the world, that's all they've got. It's a mark of incredible privilege to be like, you know what, what should I do? I could be one of these 74 things. I'm going to the UW. I can pick from 175 majors. You know, most people do what their dad did or what they get pressured into doing or whatever is just down the street that they think they can get some money doing so they don't starve to death. That's what most people in the history of the world have done. And so they didn't have the luxury to be like, I wonder what my calling is. Right? And so we get all anxious about it, but like, it wasn't, it's not even a question most human beings ask. And most, frankly, most human beings are not capable enough to choose from a wide range of callings. You have to have a way above average education, way above average intelligence usually, to really have a lot of choices in terms of the vocation that you'll choose for yourself. Especially if you're going to be at all effective in it. So when we say calling or vocation, we don't literally mean Jesus said to you, Sarah, you will be a barista. Get the little pouring flour thing right because you're going to be doing it for a while. You know what I mean? Like that's, that's not what we mean. It's not a literal, you hear the thing. Like Moses, okay? It means something like this. What each person follows Christ into as the good work of their labor that he does for his glory and his name for the good of his neighbor and creation. This is the result of his call to Christ. So your calling, in that sense, is if you've been called to Christ, you come to Jesus and you follow Jesus. As you follow Jesus and try to keep in step with the Spirit and make choices about what to do at different turning points in your life, you are going to follow some kind of path. And in that path, you are going to continually respond to Jesus calling you to obedience and faith and action. And you will do something for the glory of God and for the good of your neighbors. When you do that, that will create a life for you. It may change a hundred times. Right? I mean, just think how distressing it would be if you were like, well, God called me to be a, like a baker, and there's like, I live where there's no bread and only potatoes. What am I going to do? You know, like, th things happen where you have to change what you're going to do. Right? You're like, well, God, you know, God called me to be a doctor, and then you have like a severely disabled child. Well, maybe God just called you to something else. Not because you hear a voice from heaven, but because you realize— What's following Jesus going to look like in this situation? And then you take the responsibility to make a choice to do what's good and beautiful that you know Jesus would want you to because you're following him because he called you, right? And you're his. And as a called person, you enter into the calling laid before you, whatever that is. So it's both from God and something you have to actively choose. Because here's, here's what, here's what your own flesh and devils want to do with this whole, like, I need to know my calling from God, is to use that spiritual frame of wanting to know what Jesus wants you to do, and to use that as a way to avoid taking the responsibility you need to take to choose what you're going to do in your life. Part of the dignity of being God's adult children is Him making you a steward, and for you to know His will, and then Use your own mind and abilities to put it together with what you know about him to choose what to do in the situation he's put you in. 
so that you can live in the full humanity that he's created you to have, not just being constantly anxious about whether or not you heard God right. Did I hear God right? Did I hear God right? Did I hear God right? Is that what God said? Did God say anything to you? Did he say something to me? I don't know what God said, or I can't possibly do anything. Like, you're 34, and you haven't gone to college, and you don't have a job, and you're like, well, God hasn't told me to do anything. You just don't know, and you, you can't live like that. And God never says to live like that. You can read the whole Bible. It never says to live like that. The Bible says to act in faith, and to obey the Lord, and to do what he says is good, and to commit yourself to good things, and to do them, and to love your neighbor, and to love God. It never says to wait around for God to call you to anything. It says when you hear the call, when you feel the conviction, you hear the gospel, believe it. Today is the day of salvation. And then you continually respond by faith. And sometimes God will subjectively lead you. I'm going to get to that in just a second. But it's important to start with the baseline, which is when we talk about calling, we mean what we do because Jesus called us in salvation and is changing us. Not, I know exactly what Jesus told me to do right now. Does that make sense? All right. Last. Embracing a vocation is still following Christ's call. So instead of hearing a vocation, responding to what we know about Jesus, responding to what we think Jesus might be doing, and then making a choice, and then embracing something to do, is following Jesus. Because Jesus calls you to fruitful labor. You got to pick something, right? And just because God doesn't telephone you, or yell, or speak audibly, or call you in the same way he called Abraham or Moses, literally, doesn't mean he's not calling you, or that you're not following his call. You are. Does that make sense? So you could say something like this. Finding God's will for your life happens by applying faith to taking responsibility rather than trying to get God to make your decisions for you. Now, you might say, okay, well, okay, Nick, so if I'm going to make decisions, but how do I make the decision? If it's my decision to make sort of with God's inspiration or help or illumination, how do I do that? Okay, so there's a few, there's, there's a complicated way. I'm going to try to simplify this a little bit, but without simplifying it too much, okay? So here's, here's how I would describe a way of thinking about embracing God's calling in your life in terms of choosing large things to do in terms of like what you might do for a living or and this also includes, like, have you ever heard somebody say, like, you know, I feel like God's calling me just not to date anybody right now? Just, okay, just tell the guy you don't want to go out with him. Just say it. Just say, like, okay, I don't want to go out with you. I'm sorry. I just don't want to. Just say that, okay? Because when you say God isn't calling you to date somebody because you know that guy's going to ask you out and you want to say no to him, the problem is when you go out with a guy the next week, everybody thinks your spirituality is a sham. You know what I'm saying? And you shouldn't do that. Don't, don't, don't fake it. Just deliberate through— all the different things God is bringing into your life with the help of others who love you and try to figure out what direction to go. So here's some things you can think about. One is, is your holy ambition. So this is your devotion to Jesus, okay? You're devoted to Jesus, and because you're devoted to Jesus, some things should come up inside you. You'll, you'll care about some things more than other things. And you will—and you'll just care, right? Honestly, like, that's a big deal, right? C.S. Lewis said in, in um, <clears throat> Men Without Chests, I see my point as a teacher not to take the excitement of youth and to get it to tone down. I find that people are way too apathetic. My job isn't to cut down jungles. It's to irrigate deserts. Like, the human heart, when it's selfish, is dry. 
It gets passionate about itself in anger, but it doesn't get passionate about anything good. And so Jesus, part of the calling, the transformation of Christ, is to get you reconnected to your humanity, reconnected to creation, reconnected to the world around you, reconnected to what's good in that world around you, and to get you ambitious about it. Does that make sense? And so you take that ambition, and then you say, what are you as an idiosyncratic human being interested in? You know what I mean? Because we're not all interested in the same stuff. We're interested in lots of different things. You're interested in some people like fixing stuff. Some people like traveling. They like new languages. Some people are foodies. Some people really like systems and making systems work better. Some people like being with people who are hurting and encouraging them. There's, there's a hundred, there's like so many different interests out there that that fit in with a holy ambition, but they aren't themselves a holy ambition, right? Sometimes I refer, I refer to these as secondary passions. Your primary passion is Jesus. Fantastic. Okay. But what are your secondary passions? What else are you passionate about? This is why people in churches fight over like worship versus missions versus philosophy and apologetics versus plowing the snow. And the, you know, like they get, they get upset with each other about whose emphasis is on what. And they don't realize that there are lots of subsidiary passions that come from the one passion of Jesus. It's not just yours. Does that make sense? So you take that, and then you take the needed grace. So part of, one of the things that limits us is you just can't do everything. Do you, do you realize this? You just—you're not good enough. You're frank. You're frankly—like people will tell you. People have told some of you since you're little kids. You can be anything you want to be. Right? That, do you realize that's a lie? That was, they, that was a lie when they said it. That's never been true. You can't be anything you want to be, okay? And neither can I, okay? There's a lot of things we're not going to be, okay? Some of you don't concentrate well. Some of you are bad at math, right? Some of you just don't like icky things with bad textures. Like, there's lots of limitations that we all face, right? And the fact is, is that a lot of us just don't—and that—this is what the Bible refers to more than anything about our choices, is what we have the grace to do. Like, I've had parents talk to me about their, their ADD kids, and they're like, my kid just doesn't concentrate. They're all over the place. They're these social butterflies, but they can't do any math. And, blah, blah, blah. and I was like, listen, stop lamenting. Stop lamenting what your kid isn't going to be and help them find a family of things that they might be good at. Because sometimes those ADD people are great at sales, and we need lots of salespeople. Like, there's, there's jobs that fit different kinds of temperaments. It's not like, you know, it's, it's not like there's nothing they can do. People have different graces, Right? And some jobs take a combination of a bunch of different graces, and some very little. And you, you, part of it is finding the fit of what graces you have relative to your interests, relative to your passions, and then you have to have an opportunity to do it. Right? Like if you want to be a pastor and no one will let you preach because you're terrible, then maybe that lack of opportunity over time might tell you that maybe this isn't the thing. Right? And then you're also looking for confirmation, which is both an area where the body of Christ helps. It's also the place of Christian mysticism, right? Uh, it, within the Bible, though it doesn't teach you to get God to speak to you for everything you do, there is a place in the Bible for God to say things, to inspire things, to lead you in certain ways. The Spirit does work inside of us, what the Orthodox Church calls uncreated grace. All the things we can touch is created grace, right? But there's an uncreated grace where God touches you. The problem with that is, is that if I write, if I write you a letter, right? I heard an Orthodox monk say this. I found this very helpful. He said, if I write you a letter, you're going to get something that is less personal, but more definite, right? But if I reach out and I touch you with my hand, right? 
that's different than getting a letter, right? It's going to mean something incredible to you, and you may have no idea what the touch means, <laughs> right? And so one of these that happens to us sometimes is God will touch you with his uncreated grace in the Holy Spirit, and you'll burst into tears or something. Like, you'll feel so, like something's happening, but you may, not, you may not know what it means. And without something else happening or somebody else being there or you knowing something, you may not know its significance. You may just know that God is there, that God cares about you enough to do something, or that God is present in some meaningful way, which you should have already known, but you, you didn't feel, right? And so within this realm of confirmation is both other Christians wisely helping guide you. Yeah, you're not crazy. That, that is something you're good at. That is, a great, that is an interest of yours. That is something you have a passion for. Not everybody has a passion for that. You should look at that, right? And the mystical actions of God's Holy Spirit working with your intuitions and leading you to things. But here's the thing. Do not assume that that's the whole boat. People get sideways seeking God's definite guidance when they think this part of confirmation, the speaking of the Holy Spirit, is the whole gig. Does that make sense? The Holy Spirit works in concert with how God has created you, how he's shaped you. The graces the Holy Spirit has given you. First Corinthians 12 says that the graces we have are from the Holy Spirit. So these graces distributed by the Holy Spirit and this confirmation given by the Holy Spirit should kind of match up, right? Because the Holy Spirit is doing them. Does that make sense? And these opportunities are worked out providentially by God and by his Spirit. So as you look to work these together and as you confirm with people who love you and can take a look at this as well, you can work towards figuring out what to put your hand to next. It doesn't mean you're going to do that the rest of your life. The Bible never teaches that about vocation. And so you don't have to be anxious about it. Does that make sense? And you can know theologically that God is preparing good works for you to do that you don't know anything about, that he's shaping you for that you know a little about. And that he is working and going ahead of you in those things. It's just your job to do what you know he's telling you to do, right? A lot—one of the biggest misunderstandings Christians have is the difference between God's revealed will and God's secret will. God's revealed will is what he's said already, what he's shown. You're loved in Christ. You're a sinner saved by grace, right? That you're called to do good works, that he's, he's reshaping you in Christ, that you need to walk with the Spirit and grow in grace and all that kind of stuff. That's what you know, Right? And then there is his secret will, which is whatever he's doing, that he's not going to tell you. Okay, Satan's goal and the goal of your flesh has always been to get you worried about this so that you'll ignore this. That's always the goal. Okay? And one of the ways, one of the ways Christians are lied to by themselves and devils to get them is to tell you that's what God wants and how you relate to the Holy Spirit. Right? Devils will, will try to convince you, and your own flesh will try to convince you because it wants to live a passive life, that what you should believe about God the Holy Spirit is that his job is to tell you God's secret will. Because sometimes the Holy Spirit does tell God's secret will. Right? Like there's such a thing as a prophetic word where God tells us stuff we wouldn't otherwise know. And that that's like the main thing, and like that's what the Spirit does. You should focus on that. That's not mainly what the Spirit does. What the Spirit mainly does is applies and leads us in these things to actually do what God has already said. And then this stuff, he likes to keep secret. It's fun for him because it produces maturity and growth in us, and he gets to watch and enjoy it. Right? Now, let's end with this. It's supposed to get you excited for worship, okay? The band can start coming back up if you guys want to. All right. Nehemiah believed everybody's work was important. 
He empowered everyone. He wanted to empower everyone by telling them that they mattered, okay? Nehemiah is nothing to Jesus. Jesus is the true and perfect empowerer of every person and dignifier of every person. He created you in his image. He redeemed you in the cross. He gave you all the priesthood. He gave you work to do that's all necessary for flourishing. Every job, everything that you do feeds into the flourishing of everyone and makes possible not only people's flourishing and having a hope and a future in things temporal, but also to show what happens when God fights for us and does things through us all together. Right? Jesus did not end in his dignifying of you in his death and resurrection. Through his death and resurrection, he called you. And he didn't just call you to salvation. He called you to a path that when you walk it and choose it becomes a vocation full of the dignity of God. So let's take a few minutes. We're going to—there's going to be three songs we can sing together and um, seek to really turn our hearts and minds to him fully and to embrace how God gives us our dignity in many ways so that we can fully embrace him in our vocations. God, as we turn our hearts to you in musical worship, as we sing, help focus our minds and hearts on what's true about you and therefore us and how you're guiding us and help us to embrace and know the dignity you've given us in our vocations, whether we clean counters for a living or create public policy or whether we do Christian ministry, to know that we are priests, we are loved, we are died for, and you are using all of our works. You are preparing the good works all of us do, and they all matter. Help us to believe that so that it encourages us and strengthens us. In Jesus' name, amen.